Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. That was quite a cheers. Oh, man. Here Uh, we are. I want to welcome Rachel Bloom, my good old friend from college. It's very true. You may know her from the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Or from the sketches that we wrote, such as Now That You're President. (laughs) Uh, The Anne Frank Ben Franklin Museum. I think that was you. I don't think I was involved You know what? Anything with Anne Frank was also you. Um, And uh, Lawyer Salesman. Lawyer Salesman was a classic. Some of our greatest sketch hits. You can check them out nowhere. Nowhere. You can check (laughs) them out 10 years ago on stage at NYU. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. I was so much skinnier because I was depressed. (laughs) But now we're all so happy because we just watched Space Jam. Oh, good segue, Joya. (laughs) She's really good at this. Yeah, Space Jam. It's the highest grossing basketball movie of all time. What other basketball movies are there? Yeah. Air Bud. Hoop Dreams. Right. Okay. Air Bud. Uh, Hoosiers. That's a movie. White, um, white a Man Can't ho- Jump. White Man Can't Jump. He Got Game. <laughs> I can't believe how many I'm thinking of. Basketball Diaries. <laughs> There's a lot. So never mind. This is the highest grossing. <laughs> That's the point. Should we listen to the trailer? Yeah, let's do it. When the world's greatest athlete, Michael Jordan, teams up with the world's best loved cartoon character, Bugs Bunny, you won't believe your eyes. Pardon me, Mr. Jordan. Could I have your your John Hancock? What's going on here? We need your help! You heard of the dream team? Well, we're the mean team. Ready? Warner Brothers presents Jordan. Bugs Bunny. Special delivery! Together, they just might save the world. Space Jam. Wow. Uh, Y'all ready for this? Couple thoughts. (laughs) Just off the bat. Uh I can't believe I saw that trailer and was like, I have to see this movie. (laughs) You're like, this is it. Because that trailer makes no sense. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Michael Jordan, whoa. All it's telling you is Michael Jordan, Looney Tunes, basketball. Something. I Well, to that point, I feel like that's sort of the crux of my experience watching this movie is like having been an uber Space Jam fan. Like, I was the target demographic for this movie. I was the big target demographic yeah. too. And, and a quick overview of why this still means a lot to me. So as a kid, I was an only child. I had a very active fantasy life. Mm-hmm. And I would often pretend that cartoon characters were my friends. They were ma- my imaginary friends. Totally. And literally, there was this show on the Disney weekday afternoon called Bonkers. Oh, I yeah, had totally a, nuts. So I had an active fantasy <laughs> for uh, about a year in third grade that like he was my husband. <laughs> and I had a whole imaginary wedding. And then I had a whole imaginary, like I gave birth to his like weird animated Bobcat oh, baby. No. Whoa. Oh, yeah. I'm weird. <laughs> and so when this movie came out, it was one of the few movies... It was, you know, this and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Cool World, which I wasn't allowed to see, mm-hmm. where people were acting out like my imaginary friend fantasies. Right. And the second thing that happened was I had this crush on this guy 
starting in second grade that's like as real and palpable as any crush I've ever had. <laughs> and he loved basketball. And so I pretended to love basketball because he did. And this uh-huh. came out in the height of my crush. Oh. And so the two things combined, I still have just a really weird fondness. And then the song Space Jam was my, t- we all danced to it in the talent show. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Jock Jam City happening in this movie oh. was like, it was the, just, the, it was an era. <laughs> it was, now that's what I call music. <laughs> yeah. But you, you've written a Space Jam sketch, which I remember was in a UCB show that you did. Yeah. Could you run this run through for the audience exactly what this sketch was? Sure. So it's online. It's the first comedy <laughs> song basically I ever wrote. I wrote the lyrics. My friend Mikey Gaetano wrote the music. Hi, Mikey. And basically it takes place within the context of the musical A Chorus Line. <laughs> okay. And everyone else has shared their kind of chorus line backstory and my character hasn't. And they're like, well, you need your big confessional song right now. And she goes like... Well, there's one thing that makes me me, and that is the movie Space Jam. Oh my God, I love the movie Space Jam. Has anybody else here seen Space Jam? Allow me to describe the plot of Space Jam. And then for like three minutes, I just go through the plot of Space Jam. It's the best. And it's, it's like one of my favorite things ever. It's such a convoluted plot, like where it's like, okay, the aliens voiced by Danny DeVito, and then the monsters steal the talent, because it's such a convoluted movie. And then in the end, it's like... Why does Space Jam mean so much to you? And that's where we get into the bridge that Space Jam is a symbol Mm -hmm. of hope and beating the odds. And I am obsessed with the movie Space Jam. It sounds like it sounds like you really put yourself into that sketch. Like that sounds like you're you're struggling with Space Jam, the character is struggling with Space Jam. Do you ever think of that? (laughs) Is that what your face is right now? Like my struggle with the movie? Your struggle with your imaginary friends and, and the person's struggle with like how Space Jam helped them get through tough times in their life. Yeah. Got a real Freudian You're right. (laughs) Also, I've been wanting to write a Space Jam musical for a long time and my first song in it would be I want to titty fuck that bunny. (laughs) Titty fuck that bunny. Because they made the sexiest bunny and it's like this is in like I remember watching it as a kid and being like this is inappropriate. I feel like my dad's breathing heavily next to me watching this. She was grotesquely over-sexualized. She's so, don't ever call me doll. Yeah. I just like, don't call me doll. She's got those like, sexy walk and short shorts. she got big old feet for yeah. hand jobbing, you know? <laughs> Foot jobbing. Yeah, I mean, in terms of it being kind of a weird and incongruous script, it's it was fascinating for me as I was doing research because I didn't realize that the concept for this movie originated from a series of like super popular Nike ads where Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan faced off against Marvin the Martian and his alien henchmen. Oh. They, these were called Hair Jordan those commercials, but H-A-R-E. guess it was H-A-R-E. Super Bowl commercial, right? Yeah. Well, they had a, they had a series of them, and what's crazy is guess who directed those things? The same guy who ended up directing Space Jam. So it's like wow. a literal oh, commercial director. The, yeah, I didn't know that. Directed the film Space Jam. So yeah, well, like <laughs> that speaks to yeah, because Bugs Bunny has been an honorary member of Jordan Brand uh, since since this hair Jordan escapade Uh and in 2015 as part of Jordan Brand's 30th anniversary Nike released a Bugs themed mid-top version of the Air Jordan called the Mid-Hair along with a Lola themed and like female geared thing called the Mid-Lola so oh I'm you're going to yeah, order right now I'm looking this up <laughs> I'm, I'm, gonna, wait, I'm just putting it in the down. Amazon cart yeah mid Lola mid hair I mean, Jordan Brand holy <laughs> 
shit. Right. That's crazy. So, I mean, and that was the thing is watching this as an adult and just like seeing the blatant kind of commercial cash mm-hmm. grab happening is what was the most disappointing. Because like when Larry Johnson says that his grandmother can play better than him, it's a reference to a Converse commercial where Johnson plays his grandma. Wait. And like Bill Murray had been in a series of, ref- of 90s commercials in which he tries and fails to become an NBA player. So that's why he was there. I didn't know that. See that? In the NBA, some guys start talking about your mama, you don't listen up. You stay right here. My mother, my father, my dog, my brothers and sisters, I'm all about the game. Yeah, I know. This like destroyed my life. Oh, this is really blowing my mind and and actually ruining some of the specificities of the movie because I'm like, the movie is so hat on a hat on a hat on a hat. (laughs) There are parts of it that don't feel super commercially because it's actually pretty hard to follow. Yeah. It's it's it feels almost like weirdly experimental, mm-hmm. but the more you're saying these specifics, the more it's making sense. The parts that I didn't know about that seemed original. Yeah. So well, let me let me run through a few oh, a few more of these <laughs> mini factlets, and then I'll get to like my real existential dilemma <laughs> that you guys can help me with later. Uh-huh. But it's like even when so Wayne Knight's character when he comes in. His name is Stanley. He comes into Michael's hotel room and says, come on, Michael, it's game time. Slip on your Hanes, lace up your Nikes, take your Wheaties and your Gatorade, and we'll grab a Big Mac on the way to the ballpark. Mm-hmm. All of those were products that Michael Jordan was a sponsor for around that time. That's actually not as bothersome to me because it's like clever and more like self-referential That's and, funny. and winky in that way. But it's like... You know, stuff like Daffy suggests naming the team the Ducks and Bugs asks him what kind of Mickey Mouse organization would name their team the Ducks. This was oh. a dig at the, at the Anaheim Ducks, was which was created and established by the Walt Disney, Disney Company. Right. I and didn't catch the Mickey Mouse organization. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I remember loving That's that joke so at obvious, age like eight, yeah. nine. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it was, here I am at 30 and I'm an idiot. <laughs> And that's the thing that at the time it sort of worked. It was like, oh, and you know, and plus at that time, I didn't give a shit. I only cared about the tunes, like, and interacting with Michael Jordan. I was absolutely, I was, I was gotten hook, line, and sinker with this movie. But we talked about how Looney Tunes director Chuck Jones was pretty critical of the movie and talked about how he thought that the, a lot of the one-liners from the characters were inconsistent. He definitely did not think that Bugs Bunny needed anybody else to help him because that's not Mm. who Bugs is and... That, that was the of. most interesting thing I, I read about his take on the movie was basically like, Bugs doesn't need Michael Jordan's help. He's right. a smart guy. He's mm-hmm. so clever. He's like, he, he, these guys are idiots. It'll be very easy for Bugs to handle all of these people. Yeah. Lest we forget the I Believe I Can Fly. I think that, yeah, it was like six times platinum Space Jam soundtrack. Six times in the movie. Like, it's throughout <laughs> right. the movie. That's true. I it Believe starts. I Can Fly. I remember, I think I said, I was like, you already blew your I Believe I Can Fly load right at the yeah, beginning. You, you, the I movie starts and you that. just turn to me like, they're blowing their load. It's <laughs> very upset, man. Well, uh, something yeah, yeah. else, and I, I should say I did a friend's web series a couple years ago where we discussed the movie Space Jam and I brought this up on there. <laughs> yeah. So forgive me for being repetitive, but there's another layer to this movie that my husband brought up because he actually knows about basketball, wanted to be on the NBA and then tragically stopped growing um, <laughs> because he's a Long Island Jew. Um, he's a short man. I bought him for Hanukkah a very nice Chicago Bulls sweater. Aww. Oh, Bless his heart. Not a jersey, but a sweater. A sweater. <laughs> it's like a speak. really nice sweater. So so the big, you know, kind of catalyst of the movie is Michael Jordan's dad dies, and he says, mm-hmm. I'm going to play minor league baseball just like him. And indeed, I actually found a letter that my husband, as a kid, wrote to Michael Jordan saying, I'm sorry, your dad died, that he oh. never mailed. Oh. But So I didn't know this, but... Michael Jordan's dad was basically taken out to the woods and shot execution style. What? Yeah. 
And the theory is, you know, it was an accident, but the theory is that Michael Jordan was a big gambler. And the theory was that it was to get back at Michael Jordan for all these gambling debts. What? That's no a theory. Way. So if you actually then look at this movie in a way, the movie could be seen as propaganda mm-hmm. for Michael Jordan to rebuild his rep because he did leave the NBA and play minor league baseball mm-hmm. shortly after his father died. But the theory behind that, and I'm quoting my husband, so if I'm wrong, he's wrong, <laughs> is that he he had all these gambling debts, and that's why his father was murdered. Holy smokes, that adds so I many layers. I heard some stuff See, about the gambling thing, but I didn't know anything about it relating to his dad's death. Yeah, I don't think it's a theory. It's a theory, but then if you look at the movie, this is some real room two thirty four shit, right? Or whatever. What was the the number? Oh, the shining, the shining movie. Yeah, Yeah. I think that was two thirty four. Yeah. I mean, I'd only heard that in real life, Michael Jordan's kind of a dick, and like you Uh, know, he was really needy on set. I didn't know any of that, the personal stuff about him, really. Nobody else has tried to bring back the Hitler mustache, and he couldn't do it. (laughs) Not even Michael. Not even Michael Jordan can bring back the Hitler mustache. The guy I had a crush on. And he had a Hitler mustache? Well, it's a whole thing where he was like trying to be edgy, and right. so he came well, that's a way to, to be edgy. school in a Hitler mustache. What he was like also like jokingly anti-Semitic. It was really weird. <laughs> the, so it didn't work oh, out. It's a whole, You're a big old Jew. <laughs> oh, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. <laughs> so in this movie, they indicate that deep under the earth, down under the crust, is not molten rock, but Looney Tunes land. <laughs> right, 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 right. I decided to look into some of the deepest living organisms on the earth. Discovered in a South African gold mines, there are these round worms that can survive in 118 degree water, which seeps through the cracks about two miles under the earth's surface. Hmm. Up until a couple of years ago, we only thought that single-celled bacteria could survive that deep. But now we found this new species of worm, which is called the devil worm. Ah. Or Halicephalobus mephisto. Ah, Mephisto. Mephisto. (laughs) It's named after the Faustian lord of the underworld, Mephistoles, whose name means he who loves not the light. (laughs) The dark? The dark. Wow, but 118 degree water is that what you said? Mm Mm-hmm. Yikeronies. Yeah. It can survive with almost no oxygen, and because warm water doesn't hold as much dissolved oxygen as cold water does, Mm -hmm. there's 1% of the amount of oxygen in the water that they're living in as in the normal ocean. Whoa. So they're able to handle insane crushing pressure, crazy heat. It reproduces asexually, and it eats the bacteria that we already thought could survive down there. That's crazy. Does it need help winning an intergalactic basketball game? <laughs> Let me get to it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I wish it did. Well, it did scare the shit out of the people working in the mines when they discovered it because it looks like little black swirly things in the water, and they thought that nothing at all could survive down there. And so they were like, what the hell is this? I wound up looking into a bit about the mine itself. Mm-hmm. And this is really fucked up place. Like gold mines in South Africa, it's a complicated system. Mm-hmm. They have to pump ice down to cool the tunnels because otherwise the people working there will basically be in, an, in a fucking oven. And the right. ice making plant that's above ground goes through 6,000 tons of ice a day. Oh, so that's a lot of water. And they can only I mean... cool it to as low as 85 degrees. Oh, so God, so it's still pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. All for gold, which yeah. has no actual value. Well, one would say. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just the value we place on it. Yeah, no, exactly. Did you guys see the movie Cowboys and Aliens? No. <laughs> Is that Harrison Ford? It it's that it's movie. not good. Terrible. It's not good. <laughs> But an interesting point in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is that the reason aliens come to Earth is they 
They just want gold. <laughs> right. It's and, gold the cowboys cowboys. Are, and the cowboys are like, why do aliens want gold? And they're like, same reason we do. They have an arbitrary value in it. It really? doesn't do anything. Right. Uh, that is the plot of the movie, Cowboys and Aliens. And then there's that's like so poignant. You're like, oh, it's It true. makes you it's, think. Yeah, and then the rest think. of the movie makes you not think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read a bit more about how fucked up this mine is. And apparently there are illegal ghost miners, as they're known. Hmm. They live and eat in the mines. 10% of the gold in South African mines are stolen. And so these miners sneak into the mine shaft and hide out for months at a time, turning ghostly white with the lack of sunlight. And apparently the security guards leave them alone because they have AK-47s and beer bottle grenades and they can easily hear someone coming from far away. Jeez Louise. Also, the mines are longer than the New York subway. So it's just a huge so just place. Mole people. Yeah, mole people living place. down there. God. Could you imagine like working, living in a mine for no. months to? Yeah, and then they they get like their gold and they go off and hopefully never go into a mine again. I guess. Now this is way further, I guess, north or up than where the Looney Tunes theoretically. This is just <laughs> above Looney Tunes land. If they go any deeper, they're gonna hit that WB logo. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Looney Tunes land is the, it's beneath the crust but not where you hit magma yeah not core it's hard to say right. what they think <laughs> what the placement is, is yeah who frame Roger Rabbit goes into it a little bit more I'm trying to remember because it's been forever since I've seen that he goes like through a tunnel right yeah it's down. literally a, a tunnel just in LA which right. makes so much yeah, it's more like a, sense. It's like a soundstage or something. It's, you go through yeah. this, you go through, it's a tunnel that exists, and you go through the tunnel, and that's how you enter Looney Tunes land, and the evil guy in it, played by Christopher Lloyd, wants to mm. demolish it to build freeways, which, side note, We that all agree is, with. The good idea, he was the hero of the movie, but I that, didn't know exactly, that. But that is the story of what happened to the, the red car in Los yeah. Angeles in the 20s. The, it the was trolley. demolished. It, it, I mean, speaking of conspiracies, that oh, movie is all about how the automobile companies demolished public transportation so that they could make money to build freeways and highways. I See, we should definitely that. do Who Framed Because I remember watching that recently and thinking the same thing of like, oh man, this is a really political. It's a really <laughs> marvelous movie. Yeah, wow. it really, that one holds up for sure. Oh, it so holds up. And, and this doesn't, but in many, but is very, yes. It's a sign of the times. <laughs> it's a zeitgeist movie. I think we own that Space Jam is a zeitgeist movie. Mm-hmm. I just, unfortunately, it was one that I was like, oh, I was, I just, I have a real hard time with like getting bamboozled and I feel uh. like I was bamboozled with this film it's the definition of like a pre 9-11 film <laughs> yeah and wow, I don't it just, it really it's is. innocent it's no, yeah. silly it's like not in sexy. the way where it has anything to do with 9-11 or no. the terrorism or anything even remotely like that or like security yeah. at an airport it's just it was just we enough we were so innocent yeah. we were all so innocent it's right. only now because they're talking about making a sequel with mm-hmm. LeBron James right and it's only now you know 15 years later but you I just the idea of making Space Jam now after 9-11 yeah (laughs) it's not right yeah you gotta wait did you find anything deeper than the the worms that you were talking about no I mean we think that there's some single-celled bacteria that goes deeper than that even but those seem to be the like we just discovered these a year ago and they're by far they're way deeper than we thought possible wow that's crazy you had referenced the hollow earth theory I mean yeah this which is, I never really heard of this but... is a conspiracy theory I mean I'm a conspiracy theory novice I think they're very interesting I'm there are people who truly still believe the Earth is hollow, mm-hmm. and it was a theory that's been debunked by the scientific community. Oh, really? Since the <laughs> 1800s. Well, um, why do they think this? 
And what well, what is the evidence of this? An early 20th century proponent of Hollow Earth, William Reed, wrote Phantom of the Earth in 1906. There are many branches of Hollow Earth theories. One of them is called a convex Hollow Earth theory, that we live on the inside surface of a hollow spherical world, so what? that our universe oh, okay. is in the interior. Okay. Wait, okay. Wait. I see it. So all the stars that we see are within a space that's as small as the Earth? Is that the the idea? Yes. That when we look at things with telescopes, they're just really tiny? Yes. Crab nebula. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, take a conspiracy theory and someone Believe thinks of it. it. Yeah. Mm. There is obviously a lot of evidence <laughs> against this. Yes. Right. Well, like the flat Earth theory is, you know, yes. like, yeah. To, to try to visualize that, is it like we're basically living in a giant Truman Show soundstage? Is that what that means? Like, We're living in know. like an under the dome. Yeah. Okay. So in that way, wow, that's fascinating. It makes me just wonder like from whence that comes. Like what is the need to explain this? It's mistrust. What connects all the conspiracy theories is that whatever the mainstream says, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. That the scientific community is trying to trick mm -hmm. us. And that's why it then goes into things like the Illuminati and there's this grand right. conspiracy to fool everyone. A couple of weeks ago, I did a whole thing on conspiracy mm -hmm. theories and why people believe them. And it has to do with like the less likely it is to be true, the more somebody wants to believe it. And it has to do with them wanting to be unique. Yeah. It's mm. the same kind of thing as like, like I knew about that band before it was cool. Mm -hmm. It's like. Just to an extreme degree. Right. It's like, I'm unusual. And the thing that makes me unique right. is that I believe this crazy well, thing. Well, and like, oh, you lemmings think this. And then right, I'm right. one of the few that That's knows the, the yeah, truth. You yeah. figured out a truth yeah. that everybody else doesn't know. And that makes you cool. Right. But also a very popular narrative among especially liberals, which I am one, but mm -hmm. but among many people, I mean, it's it's a story of the little guy versus the big di mm -hmm. big guy, mm -hmm. David versus Goliath, and and this idea that if there's a mainstream thought on something, that must be wrong because mm -hmm. whatever the big guy is, whatever the mainstream right. is, they're wrong. And you see this come up All in movies, mm -hmm. proving the big guy wrong. It's always the little guy right. with the crazy out of the box idea. I've been talking about that with a friend of mine recently where it's just like, we watch a lot of these sci-fi movies and th so many of them, the message is the government is bad. And yeah. it's like, what if, so, what if there was a story where like, it was like the system is good. Mm -hmm. Like what? Or at least where there was like some nuance. You know what I mean? Right. Because I'm going to talk about the just the cultural importance of a character like Bugs Bunny later. But like this guy is always punching up to power, right? right. Like he is mm -hmm. not an, in an empowered situation, but always beats the bad guy mm -hmm. with grace and, you know, wit and all of that sort of thing. So I see being drawn to something like that. But then, like you said, I think this idea of mistrust that goes so far away from reason and mm -hmm. it becomes like intellectually dishonest to suggest that oh because the scientists agree that's how you know that they're foolish well, that's, <laughs> it's like, like insane scientists are fallible right. that's like it's inherent in science mm -hmm. but that's a thing that a lot of people forget about when they're talking about these things and because it's less know. interesting and it's less black and white and right. people like to think in terms of good and evil black and white mm -hmm. because that's a narrative and that's patterns mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. our if you've read the book sapiens what separates us as a species from all other species on Earth, including the other Homo species, mm -hmm. Homo erectus, because those lived in the same time as Homo sapiens, mm -hmm. is our ability to tell ourselves fictions, mm. and religion being one of them. And right. so naturally, you see in ape communities, one ape has the ability to control only about 100, 150 apes. It's only when you say, see that ape over there? That ape is our god. 
mm-hmm. you can control large swaths of people. So our ability to, st- to well, tell can stories. Can they do that with apes? Wouldn't that be amazing? That <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> no, ape is what, God, and then all the apes are all. But our ability down. to believe in mass fictions mm-hmm. is the reason. I mean, money being the best example of mm-hmm. a fiction, right? Gold. Gold. <laughs> Which brings me back to cowboys and aliens. <laughs> a lot of basketball in this movie. Yes, the there is. primary thing that they talk about in here. But I uh, didn't Baseball know... Baseball player Michael Jordan is in it. That's right. Well, I didn't know like the history of basketball. I guess I always assumed that it was evolved from some ancient game or something like that. But interestingly, unlike most other sports, basketball is not the evolution from an ancient game. The inventor's name is Dr. James Naismith. Oh, really? And Naismith was born in 1861 in Ramsey Township, Ontario, Canada. Whoa, this yeah. is a way newer sport than way I thought. Way newer. I know, totally. And so like, after graduating from a Presbyterian college in Montreal with a theology degree, Naismith embraced his love of athletics and then headed to Springfield to study physical education. So while he was there, he introduced this new course in his class on the psychology of play. And in his opinion, he felt that the work needed to motivate and inspire the young men he taught and, quote, should be of a recreative nature, something that would appeal to their play instincts. So it became an adaptation of many games of its time, including American rugby, which is where passing comes from, English rugby, which is where the jump ball comes from, lacrosse, which uses a goal, soccer, the Mm. shape and size of the ball, and then something called Duck on a Rock, which was a game that Naismith had played with his childhood friends in Ontario. I want to play Duck on a Rock. Yeah, so Duck on a Rock. Sounds better than basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Duck on a Rock used a ball and a goal that could not be rushed, which means that like the goal couldn't be slammed through. That's why the goal had to be horizontal with enough of an opening that the ball would have to be like tossed into it we didn't as opposed have the to, like, technology to dunk yet. right right exactly well and incidentally i found this excerpt from a january 31st 1939 broadcast of the radio program we the people and this is believed to be the only known audio recording of naismith as he discusses the invention of b-ball and i figured i might as well let him speak yeah. for himself dr naismith how did you happen to invent basketball Well, Mr. Heater, it was in the winter of 1891 when I was physical instructor at Springfield College in Massachusetts. We had a real New England blizzard. For days, the students couldn't go outdoors, so they began roughhousing in the halls. We tried everything to keep them quiet. We tried playing a modified form of football in the gymnasium, but they got bored with that. Something had to be done. One day, I had an idea. I called the boys to the gym divided them up into teams of nine, and gave them an old soccer ball. I showed them two peach baskets I'd nailed up at each end of the gym, and I told them the idea was to throw the ball into the opposing team's peach basket. I blew a whistle, and the first game of basketball began. And uh, what rules did you have for your new game, Dr. Naismith? Well, I didn't have enough, and that's where I made my big mistake. The boys began tackling, kicking and punching in the clinches. They ended up in a free-for-all in the middle of the gym floor. Before I could pull them apart, one boy was knocked out, several of them had black eyes, and one had a dislocated shoulder. It certainly was murder. (laughs) Well, after that first match, I was afraid they'd kill each other, but they kept nagging me to let them play again. So I made up some more rules. The most important one was that there should be no running with the ball. That stopped tackling and slugging. We tried out the game with those rules. 
and we didn't have one casualty. We had a fine, clean sport. I don't believe that this is a real man. I call bullshit. I call bullshit, I call on, bullshit this on, on this. A re- uh, this is a person. This is a young man doing an old person's voice. I know that. <laughs> It's like a sketch. This is definitely a sketch. Yeah, I guess after that first game of Lord of the Flies basketball, he had to draw up these rules, and that's Mm. where traveling came from. I mean, that's obviously, at the very best, massaged truth. What What it sounds like to me, and this is a lot of great things in American culture, that white people claim have actually just been stolen from black people. That's I, true. I feel like I he came that. across the voice. This is reads as that. It's too. just it's just a white person claim, and I and I don't have anything to substantiate this. Mm-hmm. I just feel like this is something <laughs> that African Americans had been playing for a long time, and he right. saw it one day and was like, "I'm just gonna steal this," right. like the cheerleaders in Bring It On. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd heard it or if I'd like read it somewhere or what, but like I definitely had thought that it was like an African game that mm-hmm. they, that, you know, then kind of evolved oh. from, from, the, but again, I'm like, I don't like every site that I went to was like, yeah, it's Naismith. Naismith is the one that did this. And then what's crazy is like how much of an instant success it was because the rules were printed in a college magazine, which was then mailed to YMCA's around the country. And then like at this particular Springfield College, it had an international student body, which introduced the game to a lot of foreign countries in a short amount of time. So... Yeah, hmm. it was like by 1905, basketball was officially recognized as a permanent winter sport. It just sounds like you guys had an issue with his voice. Well, I just, I don't know. That's the thing where I'm like, are you putting that on for the cameras because nobody has ever recorded? Like, what is, is that a real voice? Did he just sound I like that? I think people also, just sounded like I that. I also know that's not how things happen. Like, I just was doing an interview <laughs> with some magazine of like, how did I create my first music video? It's never like, well, one day... I, I woke up and I thought I thought of a music video and so I called my friend and I was like, let's make it. And we made it. And we put it. It's like, no, I had this idea a couple of years later and I was like, should I do this? Right. There's always, and obviously look, that's just the art of storytelling mm-hmm. and I'm not faulting him for that, but it just seems too perfect. Well, because there were several articles that I read about Naismith, but I didn't want to be like, it all started when he, be-, you know what I mean? It's like right, he right. had a lot of, like one of the head honcho athletic directors above him was the one that like tasked him with creating this winter sport that, you know, made boys like motivated to want, you know, the psychology of play and all that stuff. So I think that there were different people involved in this, but also this particular recording was from we, the people, this was before a Madison square garden basketball game. And they wanted to, before this sold out game, wanted to talk to the inventor. So it sounded at least, I understand the skepticism. It sounded like (laughs) it was, it was accepted to a large degree that Smith was the guy that at, at least American basketball uh, well, that, this is the thing, like, I, I love the calling bullshit on, like, real research where it's like, this is what we found. Yeah. It's like, this is what <laughs> Who knows? it seems to be the truth. But there definitely is a thing where it's like, history is written by the victor. Yeah. But, well, considering I was saying earlier that it was already an amalgamation of a bunch of different right, games, right. it would be intellectually dishonest to suggest that like no other culture anywhere ever had ever played something similar to basketball, Mm. which is at the end of the day, a pretty simple sport. I mean, actually the original 13 rules that he posted on the bulletin board, they haven't changed that much. I Mm. mean, like, it, it's like you, you got your guards and your centers and the blah, 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 and the traveling and all this stuff. But that at least made sense to me of like how to eliminate all out 
war on the court because mm. I was like, why why they mm. got to dribble the ball? Like, what's the deal with that? But, <laughs> but it makes it a lot harder to elbow and kick and punch if you're having to pay attention to bounce the ball. So also, it's like, that's its own skill that you have to master. Right, right. In terms of, yeah, like the whole coordination of it. And Where certainly, do they get the term dribbling? I don't know. That's a good point. Yeah, should be, dri- should be called like bouncy bounce. Bouncy yeah. <laughs> bounce is a much better word. Well, and they it took a few years for them to even cut out the bottoms of the pitch baskets. It used to be like you had to have a big old stick that would like <laughs> knock the ball out. <laughs> so it wasn't a fast moving game, you know what I mean? Like it was, it's it's definitely manifested. I definitely had not imagined this like old timey white guy being like, well, it all began on the winter of 1872. <laughs> I want to bring up another topic that I've actually done a little bit of research on, which Please is do. the players lose their talent suddenly. Yeah. Yes. Have yeah. you talked to anyone? Have you done, are you, were you going to cover this or? No, I did start opening tabs in like, like people who got an injury and then suddenly gained a talent and stuff like that. What? So, so there's an interesting thing. This is actually a pretty well-known story. It's called Steve Blast disease. I think that's how you pronounce it. And Steve Blast was a baseball player in the 60s for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And after the 1972 season, he had a sudden and inexplicable loss of control. He was a pitcher. And it's now known as that the Steve, Monsters Steve came. that the Monsters came, <laughs> that Steve Blast disease and the diagnosis is applied to talented players who inexplicably and permanently seem to lose their ability to throw a baseball accurately. What and, happened? Was it like he got hit in the head or he no, just suddenly lost it? He just... Didn't, he did mention one of his teammates um, and a close friend did die right before he lost control. But he said that that grief didn't play a factor. So there is this phenomenon of the idea of someone losing their talent, which is, especially to a musical theater kid like me, literally the most terrifying thing right. you could say. <laughs> Absolutely. I've never heard of anybody like getting hurt and then gaining a talent. That'd yeah, be great. that's that's the thing out there. I'll look into that more for the future. Well, because I mentioned the savant syndrome. Right, right, that right. That there are a couple of examples of people gaining crazy abilities, whether it's painting abilities and stuff like that. But there's definitely cases of getting getting hit in the head and gaining a, an ability out of nowhere. I yeah, I, I can definitely see that in the realm of like cognitive abilities for right. sure, but when you're talking about athletic, it's like there's so much physical training that goes in. But there's also in. coordination elements mm-hmm. that your that is calculations that your brain is doing, control of your own body. Yeah. I don't know like it, you know. I do wonder that's actually something interesting to look into like if you were is it possible to have sustained some kind of head injury that would allow you to do a Jump shot, right? Know, yeah, that without be... any training. Oh my yeah. god! Don't tell my husband. He will. <laughs> he's gonna smack he's his going head. He's going to smack his head repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. He once said to me, he would give up like everything in his life, <laughs> including me, just for the ability to dunk. To dunk, yeah, just one. Not time even even. like to be in the NBA, just the ability. And I was like, "What do you mean you give me up?" Because well, I win you back with my ability to right. dunk. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. you can't argue with that logic. Well, and similarly, in this movie, at the very end, the the players think that they need the like powerful juice and. Shit. Right. Right. It turns out to be like a placebo. Michael's effect. secret stuff or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and, and you had talked about like the existence of a placebo effect or like that being well, kind of a mental thing. Yeah, well, that's the thing is like at like halftime, the Looney Tunes are all tired and depressed and Michael gives them like some secret juice right. or whatever. And it's played like it's steroids. <laughs> Like they're, yeah, they're all crazy. They're, they're like they're like, should we take in performance enhancers? And Michael literally says, "Well, do you want to win?" Yeah, exactly. But it turns out it's just water, so right. it's like a placebo effect. And I wound up looking into a very strange phenomenon that seems to be happening with the placebo effect. 
So in the mid-90s, pain drug clinical trials found an average of 27% of patients reported pain reduction from a new drug compared to a placebo. In 2013, that number had dropped to 9%. Mm-hmm. And we think that's not because the drugs are getting worse, but because the placebo effect is growing stronger and bigger over time. So it's not just pain medications. It's also being found in antidepressants, antipsychotic studies, too. We don't know why it's happening or if it's really happening or if it's going to continue. But over the last 15 years, we've been really trying to understand the placebo effect. As you're talking, I'm thinking like all of the ways that I sometimes utilize that. uh, Example, drinking decaf coffee. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have the caffeine in it, but But I still still feel feel it. There's like the compulsion. My boyfriend has a vape pen that he's like minimizing the nicotine little Mm. by little to the point where there's nothing in there, but he still huffs on it because it's like, (laughs) it's, you know, it's that, it's that compulsion. It's the oral Mm -hmm. fixation. It's all of those things. And I wonder if that has anything to do with it too. Like the sort of the mind body connection. Well, that's the thing is that like the placebo effect is so interesting because it's like the meeting of biology and physiology. Right. It's like physiology is affecting our biology in ways we don't really understand. Mm -hmm. And I love this quote I read about it where it's like, it turns out sugar pills are stronger and more useful than we previously imagined. Totally. Placebo, by the way, is Latin for I shall please. All right. Kind of pacifies you. Well, some people are hoping that using the placebo effect more efficiently could help reduce the dependence that people have on opioids. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also find it fascinating because placebo, I guess in the way that I've heard it, it always has a negative connotation, like as though it's something that someone does secretly, like turns out there was nothing in that. Well, but like, who cares? Right. You know, because that's the thing. Like, it works a few different ways. First of all, sometimes time heals your disease. So Mm -hmm. the placebo buys time for the body to heal itself. Mm -hmm. Another thing is confirmation bias, where people are taking the placebo, start paying attention to the signs that they're getting better, and they start ignoring the signs that they're getting worse. Mm -hmm. There's also the expectation that drugs have helped you in the past, so this drug should help you now. Right. I saw a study that showed if you give a painkiller via a hidden robotic pump under the bed, the person needs twice as much painkiller to get the same effect as when the drug is given by a nurse they could see. When the oh, real drug. When the wow. real drug is Whoa. given by a nurse, it's twice as effective as given the drug secretly. That's kind of crazy, man. So it's a whole wow. combination of things. Some people are prescribing a real drug to someone and then switching them to a placebo halfway through treatment, and the brain takes the placebo as being the real drug, and it works in biology, not physiology, so your immune response continues to change as though the real drugs are being administered, but it's not just measurable by asking a person. It's something that's physically happening to them. And this is, this is a placebo that they were not told about? The, right. This like, is so like the idea is right. Like the with, idea is like it. The real drug becomes a placebo in the process of treatment, and so you're giving less treat, right. less wow. of the drug. It's just so fascinating and what our brains are effective. able to do. It, the like, mind's control over mm-hmm. over everything. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Well, the placebo <laughs> response isn't just like one definable thing. It's like a bunch of overlapping psychological phenomenon that lead to the brain controlling the body and Mm -hmm. i saw a quote that said belief is the oldest medicine known to man Mm. totally thomas jefferson had a doctor friend who told him that he used more bread pills drops of colored water powders of hickory ashes than all other medicines put together to which jefferson responded it was certainly a pious fraud yeah it was a very pious fraud but i mean i feel the same way about like praying you know like some people truly mm-hmm. truly believe in the power of prayer i don't personally but it's like well, that this to is me indicating is just like that a... there is a power to pray right you know right because it's so mental mm-hmm. 
That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the time these days, doctors will prescribe an antibiotic for a viral infection, which will literally do nothing. It's effectively a placebo for their patients, but they it's actually hurting your long-term immunity because we're overusing antibiotics. Exactly. And so, th- you know, that's not a good way to do a placebo. Yeah. <laughs> I've also heard this about the placebo effect, that it can be just as effective. And when you think of things that haven't been substantiated by science, like anything from crystal singing bowl therapy. Right, right. Totally. That I met a woman who was like, crystal singing bowls cured my hepatitis. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah. great, totally. okay. Like, oh, it a, feels great. I love a good crystal. I just did my first crystal sound bath. That's right. Oh, I've talked about sound baths. It's pretty great. Oh my God. It feels great. It's gr- yeah. I get it. My, if I had hepatitis, it'd be gone. Yeah. I mean, and like, depending on good who you, you are, know. it might work. Because I've told you before, when I did the sound bath, it was supposed to like tune your body. Like, get right. it. And so it's like, wh- depending on how you present a thing, I think that's that's going to determine how people receive it. Because yeah. at first I was like, oh, mm. fuck this. And then once it started, I was like, oh, man, my whole body's vibrating. I feel so much. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like the experience was valuable. It was just the the pitch that, that got me off at first <laughs> right. in a bad way. Not like good got yeah. me off. <laughs> so let's talk a little bugs. Bugs Bunny? Yeah. Mr. Bunny? (laughs) (laughs) Not the skittering kind. No, no. Um, Yeah, sorry. Like, I grew up watching Looney Tunes. I'm sure you guys did as well. But I didn't know a lot about just, you know, the history of the tunes, Merry Melodies, or or the the men and women involved. But I just wanted to look into that a little bit. So Chuck Jones was one of the most important animators of the the last century. He actually won three Oscars for his work. So he's the one that's responsible for, like, the Hunting Season trilogy and What's Opera Doc, which are widely considered some of the best cartoons ever made. But he was just one artist who shaped Bugs as a character. There were other people like Fritz Freeling, and I don't know if that's how you say his last name, and, like, Bob McKimson, who also directed classics like Nighty Night Bugs and Devil May Hair that just kind of expanded on the Bugs Bunny character. And they each kind of built on this myth that Bugs, you know, this bunny that's just minding his own business, would run into some adversary who wanted his hide, and then he would inevitably triumph with wit and grace. So what was cool is reading these discussions about how Bugs is as close to an animated cultural hero as we've got, and kind of illuminating how, like, he's the person you want to be, you know, he's the smartest one in the room, he's mm-hmm. quick, he's funny, He doesn't. he's a little bit cruel, but only to, you know, his tormentors, the mm-hmm. people that are in power it's like because he's this underdog you want to root for him and as i was saying before he punches up right like he's the hunted one he's never in an an empowered position but he's uniquely able to take on the establishment and win and then another thing that i guess now that i think back on it it was like everywhere in these cartoons but he would dress in drag a lot like he often dressed in drag and like his love of drag kind of lends this credence to the idea that he's possibly one of the most progressive cartoon characters ever made because like dresses, according to this analysis at least, like dresses don't make him weak. He's somehow even more powerful when dressed as Scarlett O'Hara and manages to break down our assumptions about the gender binary because he never needs to pass. And, you know, wh- wh- however you feel about that, I'm <laughs> going deep <laughs> with these cartoons. It's very easy to just be like, wow, oh, it was quick, it was funny or whatever. But like, you know, the fearlessness with which some of these characters existed, I, I appreciate it. And like they make the comparison between someone like Homer Simpson, who's like, you know, yes, he's the quintessential everyman, but mm. you don't really want to be Homer Simpson. He's kind of a dumb dumb mm. and like whatever. Whereas or like even Mickey Mouse, like what does Mickey Mouse mean anymore? I mean, it's yeah, like a corporate you... logo. Like, what does that mean? What but, do you want? 
want to be too, smoking a steam barge? Yeah. Like, I don't know what he did. Yeah, he's, no, he's very boring. Well, he's also, lo- I feel like just with the growth and like the, the corporate behemothness mm. of Disney, he's sort of lost his identity along the way. Well, I think there's a reason that there aren't Mickey Mouse movies. Right, right. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, I appreciated those comparisons, yeah. especially with Homer, because I'm like, no, Homer is the best. But I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to. Yeah, you want to be Homer. So the reason I bring all of this up is because I really kind of wanted to address some of the corporate stoogery that takes place in Space Jam. I was already telling you that it was a little disheartening rewatching it as an adult and sort of seeing all of the, you know, the commercials and the royalties and all of this sort of thing. But also, like, I want to be clear, Mary Melodies, I don't, I didn't know this, they were intended to sell songs from the get-go. Like, huh. Warner Brothers at this time wanted to promote the music because they had recently, in 1930, acquired ownership of Brunswick Records along with four music publishers for $28 million. So, like, because of the success of the Looney Tunes, Warner Brothers decided to develop Mary Melodies, and it was literally meant to promote the songs and the music that Warner Brothers owned. So it's in the DNA. Totally. It's in the DNA, the and, like, that was important for me to read as well because you know when I'm being very critical of Space Jam I was like but it used to be so innocent and pure and it's like but everything is designed well, to sell things to some degree yeah, I mean, anything that's capital I mean I mean capitalism is so especially with the arts is so hand in hand with like attention yeah and so nothing you would argue that anything that you're doing for a profit is already tainted mm-hmm with the need for commerce. Right. right. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing where it's like, if I, as a kid, loved the Looney Tunes and the Looney Tunes were telling fun, interesting stories that were funny, but also came from a place that was trying to sell me something, does that mean that I shouldn't have enjoyed them? Because it's like, obviously, merchandising happens. It's like, right. we're products of the 90s. Like, I had my Tasmanian devil, like, dressed as crisscross, oversized <laughs> t-shirts. You know what I mean? Like, that was everywhere. Like, backwards caps and blah, 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 Tasmanian yeah. devil, Bugs Bunny. That was a really <laughs> weird time. It was like, like, Looney Tunes were somehow synonymous with, like, hip-hop? Yeah, there was, like, this weird urban culture thing, but it almost felt facetious because it it's, like, like, is the, that... It's, like, the 90s, like, like what's that episode of The Simpsons where they bring Homer into Itchy and Scratchy and he's, like, the cool dog. Oh, like, yeah, oh, Joja, Poochie. Poochie. Yeah, Poochie, yeah. yeah, and it's, like, it's, like, that's... I think that was spoofing what was happening in the 90s. I think that's right. a really, really good point. Now, you guys have kind of already led into this discussion that I want to have about this this very tricky intersection between art and commerce and, and just being honest about it as opposed to being like, fucking sellouts. But I found this uh, excerpt from a commencement address given to Kenyon College in 1990. This was from Calvin and Hobbes cartoonist Bill Watterson. And he was expressing the reasons he turned away hundreds of millions of dollars by refusing to merchandise his cartoons. It's a little long, but bear with me. I think it's, I like it. So, quote, cartoon merchandising is a $12 billion a year industry and the syndicate understandably wanted a piece of that pie. But the more I thought about what they wanted to do with my creation, the more inconsistent it seemed with the reasons I draw cartoons. Selling out is usually more a matter of buying in. Sell out, and you're really buying into someone else's system of values, rules, and rewards. Mm. The so-called opportunity I faced would have meant giving up my individual voice for that of a money-grubbing corporation. It would have meant my purpose in writing was to sell things, not say things. My pride and craft would be sacrificed to the efficiency of mass production and the work of assistance. Authorship would become committee decision. Creativity would become work for pay. Art would turn into commerce. In short, money was supposed to supply all the meaning I'd need. What the syndicate wanted to do, in other words, was turn my comic strip into everything calculated, empty, and robotic that I hated about my old job. They would turn my characters into television hucksters and t-shirt sloganeers and deprive me of characters that actually expressed my own thoughts. So, 
I bring this up because also we're lucky enough to have you who, you know, you've experienced an, an amount of, of commercial success. And I, I, I would be really interested in what your take is in terms of that. Like, do you struggle with that? And like, where do you strike that balance for yourself? It's weird. I mean, I really struggled and it's something I still struggle with, which the norms of the things that you're supposed to do in this industry that I know are culturally damaging. So Mm -hmm. for instance, the first season I really struggled with, should I wear makeup at all on the show? Right, totally. Because then a little girl sees that and she Mm -hmm. goes, oh, her hair is always perfect. Mm -hmm. Her eyelashes are always like that. Why can't I get mine like that? And it's like, and it's portrayed as the norm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what always fucked with me as a kid is seeing things on screen (laughs) and and feeling that the thing that was portrayed as quote unquote the norm was not my experience. And so I really, really... I, I still struggle with that. And mm. obviously with HD cameras and the lighting, you do need makeup and it's very, it's very hard. As far as commerce goes, you know, I'm in a very weird situation because I'm on a network show. We make the money with advertisers. Right. right. I have hosted affiliate dinners. I do this thing every year called Upfronts mm-hmm. where we show right. the show to advertisers, but I am the lowest rated show on network television. Right. Not right. one of the lowest, the, the lowest. lowest. <laughs> to buy an ad... While my show airs on the CW, some people think it's Netflix, but it's actually the CW. <laughs> um, it's it's absurdly low. I want to say it's an ad that's like twelve thousand dollars, which is so. I'm buying an ad right now. I know, yeah, right? It. It's so so low. So, and the reason that we keep getting ordered is Netflix is, is buying your show. Well, well, is because of the critical acclaim, which is then good for them the because whole picture yeah, for exactly. The CW. So, so it really. When you're doing anything for money, it starts to be tainted by commerce. Now, since we're so low rated, we haven't gotten notes to do anything. I mean, we had... Like get some hot, hotness we, we, on the we, show. We've, we've had some... Yeah, like it's just not what the show is that they've recognized right. the, the draw like the quality. It sounds like they know that like what the show is doing and what its intention is and wh- wh- how society is seeing it. And so they don't want to mess with that maybe? Yes, but here's the thing. Then you get into the wards machine. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so critical acclaim now is not just, oh, cool, we're making art. It's how do we get the awards, and which, get the raises, which raises the profile, right? So then you have publicists. Mm-hmm. You have show publicists. You have personal publicists. You know, you pay them sometimes $5,000 a month. You have four-year consideration you, campaigns. Four-year consideration campaigns, which is oh, an enormous man, amount of money. Every time I do a press event, my hair and makeup is paid for because... It's not just for vanity. It's not because I'm special. It's because I am advertising for the show. Absolutely. And so in a way, publicity, any publicity I do, even if it's doing a song on the Emmy Awards, which is so artistically fulfilling to me, that's commerce. Right. Right. That's getting eyes on the thing. So it's very... But it's also doing a piece of art in the process. Like There's something to be said for commercials being an art form Mm -hmm. that when they're done well is like something wonderful. Yeah. Well, I wanted to touch on one of the points you made in terms of little girls seeing it though, because me, Jeff and I have had this discussion a lot and Mm -hmm. I've, I've really, really struggled with this idea of, you know, far be it for me to criticize somebody to do a commercial that's going to pay their rent for an entire year and would leave them the opportunity to maybe make something great. But like, 
I was a victim of this advertising propaganda mm-hmm. growing up. And so like as an artist, it's sort of like, you know, when I got out of college, I was very like, I'll never do a commercial man because I'm I'm better than that. I'm an artist. And since then, clearly 10 years out of school, I have reassessed that. <laughs> right, and, I, sure. and I acknowledge that it's, you know, people have got to make the money that they the way that they can. And I think it's really, truly just about striking that balance because we live in a capitalist society. Like, mm-hmm. things are bought and sold. It's just... I think the, the biggest crux of the this article that is critical of Space Jam is just saying, <laughs> like, there's no reason that a Looney Tunes movie had to be this dumb and right. feel like an 80-minute commercial for Nike, you know? There's questions as to whether or not this movie mm-hmm. truly endures. Like, Joe Pitka, who's the director, never directed anything else again. You know, that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So... He lost his talent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One might totally. say. Totally. Well, first of all, I want to ask have you ever had to do product placement in the show yeah we we wanted it because we money the thing is like i'm not actually bashing capitalism like you need money to make these things like Sure, it's an imaginary process. Like money is an is imaginary, every but like artist I, wishes yeah. that their art could be free. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, but like, nobody wants to. We need but, we need money, and so mm-hmm. when you do product placement, our first year we did Hyundai, and we made a joke of it that my character had a Hyundai that gave us more money to make the show we wanted to make. Right. Exactly. No yeah. one else offered product placement since. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing. Like as long as you're able to strike that balance, which I think you've done very well, and I certainly look to do. I mean, it's well. It's have, the shamelessness that right, I have right. an issue. Yeah. But like, would you? What is a com- kind of commercial that you would not do? Like, would you do a hair and makeup commercial? <sighs> like, we were talking about Tina Fey doing a, a hair commercial a couple of years ago, right. and how like the kind of double ways of looking at it, where it's like she probably sees herself as like an every woman and wants to be like, well, I can be in a hair commercial, but I'm more mm. of an every woman. Or is it like I'm actually just promoting the well, thing that I don't want to? And I was playing devil's advocate there because mm-hmm. I was like, but again, it's all marketing. You know, exactly. it was the same reason why they put you know Ellen as the cover girl because it's like, well, we got to expand these markets and people, people were now we're, there's more body acceptance, so let's open it up. Now that's me being very cynical and very anti advertisement, right. but. Yeah, I think there's multiple ways of looking at it because clearly, like, Tina Fey probably used that money for good, you know? She probably right. used it to make some good shit. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, look, it's very complicated when you get into commercial placement. You hear stories about, okay, so there are these women in the commercials who are advertising hair color. So legally, and I can't back this up, but I've heard what you'll do is you'll dye a strip of hair that you can barely see with the actual color, mm. and then the model will be dyed professionally. Right. I mean, I think that that's the thing that bothers me most is that... When I go on a red carpet, which is still a crazy thing to say, there are people doing my hair and makeup who are paid exorbitant amounts to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you take their techniques and you go into Seventeen Magazine and you say, how to get Rachel Bloom's red carpet look. Right. There's no way. Right. Because... These people have been trained for years in this. And that's when right. I start to get, it starts to when bother phony, me. Yeah. That dissonance, yeah. right. right? Well, but if you if just buy this product, you can look exactly like, like Rachel, Rachel Bloom, Bloom. On, the yeah. thing, on the carpet. Ex- exact, exactly. But like something like, you know, poopery. Something that I right. actually <laughs> use that is tangible. You know, I think, I mean, look. To say to the audience, that's an item where you spray the toilet and then you can poop into it and very little smell comes no out. Yes, yeah. Poopery. It just depends on the, I mean, look, I auditioned for commercials for years. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I would drive to Santa Monica at 5 p.m. and wait an hour just to go, I love Doritos. And for them totally. to be like, nope. So I desperately wanted to book commercials to raise my, you know, raise my clout and earn mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. I was in a Dunkin' Donuts commercial. I was in a a commercial that still hasn't aired, probably never will, for T-Mobile. 
And so, like, <laughs> I'm not shameless about this, but I think that right. now, I don't know, it would have to be a product I use, I guess. Right. It's very weird because our life is made of products. I mean, if we look at this table right now, exactly. I just devoured a sleeve of Ritz crackers. <laughs> right. We're drinking a very specific type of bourbon in glasses yeah. that I you mean, bought. Products are, you know, I mean, we, we're talking so much about, like, art and how art's, like, in this special category, but, mm -hmm. like products that you make for people that they enjoy and, and enhances their life there's nothing wrong with it like it, that's it, and it gets confusing when it's like but what are they trying to do are they just trying to but make money and that's their only purpose i just think being so blatant like we are doing this right. because michael jordan is the biggest star in the world yeah. and bugs bunny is the biggest star in the world and these kids are going to eat it up and there's a you lot know, of money like, to be made yeah, in this space like, jam situation like, this all happened around the same like a couple years after fucking michael jackson and michael jordan were in that video jam together and it made no sense because michael jackson's just playing basketball with michael jordan but that that's the two most popular entertainers together at last mm -hmm. it's like and look i love that video and i ate that up as much as i ate up space jam it's right. just like at age 30 i'm a little bit more critical or at least more aware right there's et which advertised reese's pieces and mm -hmm. is a great movie and then there's mac and me which is a movie <laughs> that is entirely about selling you mcdonald's right like it's it, like yeah. They're different. That's not like a good movie, Mac right. and Me. But right. you can still have product placement in a good work. I agree with that. Space I Jam may be closer to the I shitty know. end. I mean, I think it gets to the fundamental, you know, if selling goods and, and commerce and this, these, this imagined fiction of money is, is mm -hmm. essential to how humans have thrived, I think it gets to the deepest question, which is, are humans fundamentally the worst? Yeah. <laughs> right. And totally. the answer is kind of. The answer is definitely. Right. Did you have any favorite lines? No, I didn't actually. I don't think I took down any lines. Did you do anything pop yeah, out of you in your memory? My favorite line in the entire movie is Michael Jordan has landed in Looney Tune Land. <laughs> yeah. His world has literally just exploded. Mm -hmm. Like if you were sucked into a hole in the earth and sucked into the Warner Brothers logo into a cartoon world, you'd lose your mind. You would not have the reaction that he has. He goes, he goes. What's going on oh, here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, dead behind the eyes. Cardboard, like, what's Michael. What's going on here? <laughs> what's going and on here? no one would say that. And it's it's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it is beautiful. Because it shows that he's kind of a sociopath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, yeah, Rachel. Man. This was great because, Joya, you and I did sketch in early college. Mm -hmm. Rachel, you and I did sketch slightly later in college. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a great amalgamation in my life of oh, yeah. wonderful people and wonderful things. Yep. And I can't thank you enough for coming on. Yes. Thanks for having me. This was such a fun conversation. Rachel Bloom. She's um, where it's at. She's where it's at. <laughs> so you can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at It's a Joya Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. I'm at Rachel Does Stuff. <laughs> and we'll see you guys all next week for Memento. Oh. oh. I forgot that one. Hey. Just kidding. Oh. Oh. The amount of... You, you can look forward to that. <laughs> Bye. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch.